Welcome back to Supreme Myths. I am very excited today to have the person who I think is the leading election law scholar in the United States on Supreme Myths, along with a lot of other things he did. He does. He is Rick Hassan, the Chancellor Professor of Law and Political Science at the University of California at Irvine. Uh, he runs the Election Law blog. Um, he has written numerous books, too many articles and essays to talk about. But his most recent book, Election Meltdown, Dirty Tricks, Distrust, um, and the Threats to American Democracy, which came out earlier this year, is really important. And we're going to talk about that in a minute, as well as a brand new New York Times op-ed. Rick, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. It's great to be with you. So uh, how's your year been? Just kidding. <laughs> Rick's a very busy man. Um, Rick, your book talks about four different concerns about elections. And I think a lot of people really want to hear what you have to say about this. So if I have this right, you talked about voter suppression, electoral incompetence, dirty tricks, rigged election. Can we go through each one of those and talk about where we are, where we're going and what we should do? Yeah, let me just uh, yeah. say that the book came out in February 2020. Yeah. Uh, before we went through the most recent election yeah. crisis. Yeah. Uh, and uh, if anything, my book, which was called Alarmist, was seen as kind of understated in retrospect, given <laughs> what we actually went through. And, and, in fair, uh, and, and, and in fairness to you, that's because we hadn't gone through Trump's disastrous post-election lie, right? Yes. Well, I mean, we are really in terrible shape when it comes to the integrity of our elections. Okay. Uh, so the book talks about it's a, the book is about voter confidence and mm -hmm. why it is that voter confidence is plummeting. And I point to four factors. One. Uh, voter suppression um, in a number of states, although not all states uh, that Republicans control. Laws have been passed to make it harder for people to register and to vote. Um, this uh, attempt to do this convinces uh, Republican the Republican base that elections are being rigged and that steps are needed to be taken to prevent fraud. And at the same time, it convinces Democrats that Republicans are messing with the rules uh, in order to suppress the vote because there is no good evidence that widespread fraud is a, is a major problem. And so you get this kind of feedback loop and this um, really um, unproductive debate about how much voter fraud there is. And you know, the political scientists and, and others have been studying this for a few decades. The amount of fraud is quite low and yet these laws keep coming. And of course, since the 2020 election and Trump's big lie, these laws are now coming uh, in a much more dramatic way and a much more dangerous way, as we can talk about. Yeah. Then the, the second factor is election administrator incompetence. Um, you know, I tell a lot of stories in the book about how um, election administrators, because we run our elections in a hyper decentralized way, we have over 10,000 different election jurisdictions running a national election. Uh, you're only as strong as your weakest link. If there's a close election, the problems, people are going to focus on those places where there are those problems. I think fortunately in 2020, we managed to, thanks to Herculean efforts of election administrators, volunteers, half a billion dollars in private money shoring up our election system because Congress didn't come up with it. We managed to hold a very safe and secure election in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of a presidential candidate consistently casting aspersions on the integrity of the process. Rick, so can, I, that, can, that can I stop you there? Can I stop there for one minute? So, you know, I'm, I'm in Georgia, of course. And were you surprised how well the election officials, the Republican election officials here, stood up to Trump's bullying? In these 
Right. So, well, the, my concern about uh, at, at incompetence is not about courage. Um, I, um, uh, Georgia has seen its share of election incompetence, and I yeah. talk about how poorly its voter registration database was run in uh, 2016 and 2018. Right. Georgia still has a lot of problems with how they run their elections, but they did a pretty good job in the 2020 election. Um, but what you're asking me about is a somewhat different question, which is about the courage that it took for Republicans like Brad Raffensperger yeah. and Brian Kemp. Yeah. Kemp, who I criticize a lot in the book for, I think, for things he did that were uh, terrible for uh, the confidence in elections. But I think they were real heroes in this election, as were the Federal Society judges who stood up to Trump when he tried to get the courts to overturn the results of the election. Right. There are a lot of heroes on the right that I think it's very important for progressives like us to recognize, because really that's what kept the rule of law uh, going. And, and just while we just uh, while, while we're on Georgia for one second, so. I know that you talk about this um, in, in the article you just wrote for the New York Times, the op-ed, or I guess they're calling it, starting today, some guest pieces or something. I don't know. They've changed Guest essay. Guest essay, yes. But let's go back to Georgia for one second here, Rick. Um, so, you know, a lot of changes have been made to Georgia's um, voting law that have gotten a lot of publicity, especially the one about food and drink. But there's a change that happened that I, I couldn't get. I was interviewed by various local channels and D.C. channels. They wouldn't talk about this. The, the substitution of the Secretary of State as the head of the election board in Georgia. Can you talk about that for a little bit? Because that's really important. Sure. So, and this is really taking us into the topic of my uh, op-ed. Yeah. So, yeah. so uh, I, I can turn there and then we can come back to the other yeah. problems with, with elections. Yeah. But um, the we all understand what voter suppression looks like now. So, you know, if you look at coverage of Georgia's new election law, so much is focused on things like, what do you, you know, you can't give water to voters who are waiting online to vote for three hours or something like that, which is ridiculous. You know, only election officials can provide self-service water. I mean, just kind of like <laughs> a, you know, what a ridiculous kind of yeah. uh, petty thing. But we can all understand, you know, that's an attempt to, you know, discourage people from voting who are waiting in a long line, which is already discouraging from voting. But I think what we're seeing in this election, post-election season, is something even more dangerous than voter suppression. But it's something that's very hard for people to wrap their heads around. And that's what I'm calling election subversion, which is the idea that not just in Georgia, but in a number of states, there are attempts to try to make it easier to actually mess with the counting of votes. That is so dangerous, right? So, you know, we didn't really worry before um, this past election, that election officials were going to cook the books. They were going to declare the loser, the winner, or anything like that. You may remember that Trump was caught on uh, a recording with uh, uh, the Secretary of State of Georgia, Raffensperger, saying, all I need for you to do is to find 11,780 votes. The difference between his um, uh, loss to Joe Biden in the state, which would, you know, flip the state. Um, Raffensperger stood up to him. Uh, election officials in Arizona stood up to him. State legislatures in Michigan and Pennsylvania did not meet officially and try to declare alternative slates of electors. All the kinds of things that would have messed with the Electoral College. Although you had objections in Congress when the Electoral College votes were counted on January 6th after the insurrection and 147 Republican senators and members of Congress voted to object to either Arizona or Pennsylvania or both uh, of those counting. Nobody who was in a position of authority actually overturned uh, the people's will. 
Um, but now procedures are being put in place that are going to make it easier to do that. So in Georgia, uh, in that same law that says no water, that says, you know, we're changing the period for the runoff elections, things like that. Uh, it also takes uh, Raffensperger out of the process of being on the election board, replaces him with someone handpicked by the state legislature, which is the most partisan body in Georgia. By far. And, <laughs> al uh, and allows the, um, the board to take over the process of running elections in up to four uh, counties at a time, which it could include the big Democratic counties like Fulton County, where you are. Yeah. And that leads to a potential for messing with the election rules. And I say the potential because we don't know how things are going to go, but by the time we would know it would be too late, you know? So the next Trumpian candidate comes along, pressures election officials to change the rules. It could actually happen, you know? And it's not just in Georgia. Um, we're seeing in Texas, they're considering rules that would give poll challengers the ability to basically go anywhere and mess with the process of counting votes. Um, we also saw uh, not just Raffensperger and Kemp, but also the Secretary of State of Nevada, uh, um, different election officials being um, censured for standing up for the rule of law. You know, kind of sending the message: if you want a future in the Republican Party, you have to be willing, at the very least, to lie about election fraud, if not actually change election results. You put all this together, and I go through a number of uh, other things that are going on, the, including the pressuring of um, nonpartisan local election administrators to quit, you know, because they're facing threats of violence and intimidation and inadequate right. budgets. So, uh, you know, you put, you put all that together, it's really a very toxic mix that could lead uh, to an attempt to try to uh, literally change the election results and declare the loser the winner in 2024. So, okay, that's all really scary. And now I'm going to go, um, go soak my head in some water. But um, let, me, uh, let me ask a historical question and a structural question. And uh, I, I know more about the structural than the historical, but let's start with the historical. So I was always, uh, I've never researched this, but I've always been told that John F. Kennedy won the 1960 election because Mayor Daley in Chicago controlled everything. And I don't know what he did exactly, dirty tricks wise or stuffing ballot boxes or whatever. But we've heard about Lyndon Johnson's antics in Texas. And um, is this new technology taking old tricks to a new level or is this really a, a different in kind in terms of how election officials think about their election? Is that a fair question? Because I, I really don't know the answer. Sure. So I think that uh, there certainly are. Uh, documented cases of elections being thrown, mm -hmm. often by election officials. Uh, the famous one, as you mentioned, is uh, Lyndon Johnson's Senate race, where right. the votes came in late from Alice, Texas, and everybody voted uh, in alphabetical order in the same handwriting. I mean, it was uh, pretty blatant. Uh, but what's happened since the 1960s uh, is that our elections became much cleaner. Uh, as you know, you know, people are concerned about voting machines and there are reasons to be concerned about them. But one of the reasons the voting machines were actually a, uh, an improvement was that it was harder to um, mess with things when there were actual machines that were counting as opposed to hand counting of ballots where, you know, you could mess with the totals. Um, so I would say since the 1960s, certainly 1970s elections, in the United States have been very clean. Now, that's not true at every election, especially on the local level. You know, we have had 
right. instances of election administrators messing with election counts. But talking about statewide elections, we really don't see those kinds of things like we saw in the earlier periods. So I think the answer is uh, today um, we have a lot of safeguards. Uh, we need more safeguards. So one of the things I call for in the article is that every state should use voting machines that produce a paper ballot that can be counted. And Georgia now does that. That you know, there's some controversy over these machines and whether voters check the the tabs and the fact that there's a QR code on that's being scanned on the ballot. There there are certainly things that could be improved, but there is a piece of paper. So there could be an independent body like a court that could double check election results. That, that and, and that is a safeguard. It's not the only safeguard we need, but that's a safeguard. There are still a number of states, including Texas, that have counties that don't have uh, voting machines that produce paper. They're purely electronic. And I think that is not only something where the election results can be cooked, but also it can foment conspiracy theories because there won't be a piece of paper. Yeah, that, that seems that weird. seems crazy to me. I would think that it should be a hard record of of any of all votes. I I certainly agree with you about that. On the um on the doctrinal question, this is going to get a little bit thick, but I, we 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 can deal with it. I think. Um, so one hypothetical I give to my students after we in Con Law two after we talk about the redistricting cases and other cases like that, it my reading of the if we just look at the text of the Constitution, forget what judges have said. If we just look at the text, there is no right to vote in the Constitution. I can't find it. I, there's a right not to be denied the right to vote on account of race and gender. Um, and then the 14th Amendment. But I can't find a right to vote. That being the case, could Georgia, through the legislative process or a constitutional amendment process in the state, tomorrow say, you know what? We're now going to appoint our governors. We're going to appoint our – or the legislature is going to appoint the governor. Or we're just going to name the president. Or, you know, or, what's, What stops them from doing that? I know it sounds like a crazy question, but I don't think there is anything. Well, so one thing is um, that uh, changes that dilute minority voting rights might violate um, the Voting Rights Act. In this, in this court? <laughs> uh, well, so I mean, that's, you know, you asked me about the text. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, so the Constitution gives uh, in um, the 14th and 15th Amendment the power to Congress to enforce uh, those uh, amendments with which prevent discrimination. So right. that, that's that's one thing. Uh, more uh, abstractly, uh, uh, con the Constitution says that uh, Congress shall guarantee a Republican uh, form of government for each of the states. And uh, it seems to me if you don't allow people to elect the governor uh, or the legislature that you've now moved away from a Republican form of government. Now, long ago, the Supreme Court said that that is not justiciable, but that doesn't mean that Congress can't act. And so you know, I think if it came down to that, you could see Congress acting. And, and of course, if that doesn't happen, then we're talking about the very uh, kind of unraveling of our democracy that I'm worried about. You know, that would have happened if if um, if Trump, if the courts would have, for example, declared Trump the winner in in Pennsylvania and in Arizona, that also would have been the undoing of our democracy. I mean, the stakes were incredibly high in 2020 and they will be in 2024 as well, because our system depends so much on norms. And, you know, even if you had a right to vote protected in the Constitution, uh, people could ignore that. So, you know, yes, it would be better to have in writing. I had a piece earlier this uh, summer in the New York Times, uh, this past summer, called Bring on the 28th Amendment, where I say that we do need a right to vote yeah. in the Constitution. Yeah. Yeah. But if you're not going to have people enforcing it, you're not going to have people of good faith enforcing it, you, you know, it's the, the right's not really worth anything.
So really the question is not just what is textually guaranteed and I wanna see greater textual guarantees, but what are the norms of democracy that are behind whatever is in the constitution that will protect our society? And we have to focus more on those norms and on institutions for our democracy going forward. It does kind of feel like we are reading your work that we're hanging by a threat to some degree. And the, the, the increased polarization that's going on across all issues, you know, whether it's affirmative action, guns, abortion, election law. Do you think that's played a role in this? I mean, is there some skepticism that we just, we, we have two different countries now and we just, we got to find a way for elections to bridge that gap, but only if we have fair elections, right? I mean, it, it feels more polarized to me than any time in my life. Well, so I think I want to make a very fine distinction here. I don't think it's polarization itself that is causing the problem you know the united states has the united states has long been divided on issues like abortion and you know maybe not as much on guns but certainly on issues like abortion for a long time um but there used to be in the uh democratic party uh those who are anti-abortion and there used to be uh, pro-choice republicans and there are a few still but for the most part uh you know people have um, joined in bundles of issues. So where you stand, things are highly correlated. Where you stand on guns, where you stand on abortion, where you stand on immigration, those now are car on the environment. Those tend to be correlated the way they weren't before. So it's not just that we're divided on issues, we're divided in the, into these two tribes and this kind of this tribalism. But the, the fact of the matter is that one of the two parties, um, uh, it's the Trumpian wing of the Republican Party, has decided that the way to uh, try to gain power is to attack all of the institutions that uh, protect um, the rule of law and truth-telling functions. So that's the opposition party, the press, the judiciary, the FBI, and claiming uh, that uh, only they possess the truth. And so that it's asymmetrical and I'm, and I'm not saying that democrats don't have their own problems with misinformation disinformation they surely do but uh the trumpian wing of the party is an attempt to uh harness uh, a kind of uh racial and economic uh anxiety among uh white working class often rural but not only rural voters uh and try and bring them along with uh, those who are more traditionally part of a larger tent uh, conservative Republican yeah. group. And this insurgency within the Republican Party, I think, is what is so dangerous right now. And that's why, you know, when we think about things we need to do in order to promote democracy. The most important thing to do right now is to promote Republican moderates. Right. And there are ways to do that, for example, through primary reform. But right. it's Republicans that will stand up to Trump. I mean, I never thought of myself as a Liz Cheney fan uh, before, but she's showing tremendous courage in the face of relentless pressure from Trumpians who will deny, for example, that the violent insurrection that led to the death of five people and you know the desecration of the um, of the of the Senate and uh, of the Congress, they deny what happened and um, you know they deny that Trump was responsible for it and you know that is incredibly dangerous. I'm trying to figure out the motivations of Cruz, Harley, Cotton, you know, uh, I guess McConnell, although he's maybe a little different. These really powerful 
Republican senators who don't seem to want to take on Trump. What are they afraid of? Are they afraid of being primary? I mean, is Cruz really afraid of, afraid of being primaried from the right in a Senate race in Texas? Is that what's motivating him? It seems odd. You know these people hate him, right? I mean, I think we can take judicial notice. I don't know about Cotton, but certainly Cruz and Hawley, they, they can't possibly like Trump. So what, what's going on there? It's so weird. Well, I think that there are plenty of Republicans who are afraid of taking on Trump yeah. Uh, yeah. and who are worried about a primary. Um, Lindsey Graham. Liz Cheney is going to face a primary. Everyone who um, has stood up to Trump, Raffensperger, Kemp, they're all, Trump is actively looking for people to run against them as a way of kind of flexing his muscle. Um, I think that with Cruz and Hawley, they, the reason that they are hopping on the Trump train is because they want to be his heir apparent. They want to come in and be, they want to harness that energy. Uh, you know, it's the same reason that Holly and Marco Rubio are like, you know, anti-corporation, you know, where, you know, we're, the, we're representing the working class. Right. I mean, right. It, it doesn't ring true, you know, no. especially you look at Cruz and Holly and you look at their elitism and, you know, yeah. product, Ivy League product and, you know, all yeah. of that. I think it's a cynical attempt to try to uh, hitch their wagon on and let Trump pull them along because, you know, it's kind of which way the wind's blowing. Same thing with Nikki Haley, you know. When Trump is down, she's criticizing Trump. When Trump is up, she's trying to, um, you know, uh, 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 ingratiate herself with him. So I think that it's not just about fear. It's about looking what's the direction of the Republican Party. And I think, you know, it's always hard to see history changing when you're in the middle of it. I think we're in the middle of a potential historic realignment. And I wrote a piece back, there was a symposium uh, probably around 2010 in the Drake uh, Law Review uh, I remember being in, in Iowa and talking about the Tea Party movement and yeah. talking about how there was ultimately going to be this schism between the kind of a highly educated chamber of commerce type, low taxes, socially liberal Republicans and the Tea Party group, which even then, uh, you know, which said it was about the deficit. It was clear that it was this nativist um, white uh, working class movement. And so, you know, b- being funded by Freedom Works and the Koch brothers and all that. Right, <laughs> right. right. But, so, you know, so even then I saw that there would be this schism between the parties and I didn't know if that meant that the Tea Party would become a third party. What it seems like is Trump is the um, uh, heir of Sarah Palin's Tea Party and uh, it is the educated um, uh, Chamber of Commerce wing of the Republican Party that's feeling increasingly uncomfortable and some of them are going to be attracted to the Democratic Party. And so um, that realignment moment you know, you have to kind of choose sides. And I think McConnell is trying to preserve that Chamber of Commerce wing of the party and is certainly happy to have the Trumpian votes, but doesn't want to adopt a program of, you know, uh, fight trade, right. uh, you know, more more handouts. You know, the kind of, you know, Trump, Trump was quite conservative in a lot of ways, but not on the kind of financial issues that really motivate the McConnell wing of the party. Right. And so Hawley and Cruz, I think, are just, they see the future of the party as being appeals to the white working class and, you know, potentially Latinos, uh, uh, some of them coming along, as we saw in the 2020 election. So um, I think that uh, they're just being cynical political operatives. Not They're not operating out of fear, but they're operating because they think that that's going to be to their political benefit. Switching gears just a little bit, because you said something that triggered something in me. I, I've been thinking a lot about Justice Powell recently, for a lot of, Lewis Powell, for a lot of reasons. And, and um, 
in a lot of ways, he wrote some really and some really bad decisions and voted in some really bad ways in Bowers versus Hardwick, I think Hardwick and, and his commercial speech cases. But I'm comparing him to Kavanaugh, Alito, and Thomas, and or even or even Rehnquist, or even Scalia for that matter. It feels like in some regard, these three justices are so far to the right of anything we've seen before that it's kind of parallel to the Cruz, Trump, Harley. You know, they are so far to the right of the median Republican, and it feels to me like Kavanaugh and Alito and Thomas, certainly Alito and Thomas are way to the right of the median conservative justice I've ever seen before. Is that a fair analogy? Yeah, uh, well, I would certainly put Thomas and Alito yeah. in that category. In fact, Alito, I think, is Alito is someone who doesn't surprise you. Right. Ever. Like Thomas can sometimes surprise you. It's like, oh, <laughs> you know, um, uh, students don't have any First Amendment rights, right. you know, which, you know, <laughs> That's not something you think of a justice or or Thomas writes that, you know, maybe we should regulate Twitter like it's a public utility and say that corporations are. I wasn't expecting that from Justice Thomas. Right. But Alito is kind of Alito is, you know, more of a Tea Party justice than even Scalia was, although I think Scalia was much more of a kind of person of the people, um, you know, much more closely connected to the working class than than Alito was, you know, the kind of right wing populism. Yeah. I, you know, Gorsuch, I think, takes his originalism and textualism very seriously, whether he should or not, you know, you and I have a different view than he does. Right. But the point of view that sometimes leads him to surprise, um, you know, McGurk, you know, there are decisions where he's uh, not following. Yeah. So, Rick, hold, on, hold on, hold on. When you say McGurk, you're referring to this big Native American case that's very complicated. But do you think that's about originalism and textualism, or do you think it's about Gorsuch fancying himself a Westerner and a, a with common affinity, even though he grew up in D.C. and his mother was head of the EPA, um, he he fancies himself a Westerner wearing a big hat in Colorado ranches and all and his low. I think he's always been sympathetic to Native Americans. You think that's yeah. about text? Do you think it's about values? Oh, I think I think it's about values, but he yeah. thinks it's about text, you know, so I'm just saying he 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 I think he believes, you know, he, he seems completely to me completely enamored of his uh, as as Scalia was of uh, this, this jurisprudential approach, which he thinks is giving him neutral answers, which sometimes leads him to results that are not conservative the way you would not get from right. uh, Alito or Thomas. Kavanaugh seems to me to have very strong conservative instincts like Alito, but he's much more of a politician. And, you know, he also has a reputation to try to rehabilitate. He wants to be brought back into polite society. So he's invited <laughs> to give fancy lectures at law schools. Right. You know, I think he fancies himself like that. So I think he's holding back somewhat. And Roberts is, you know, I would call him the traditional um, Chamber of Commerce Republican, you know, and that's why he's, he's and, and Barrett, I think it, it's too soon to tell. Um, although I suspect that she's going to be uh, much more, uh, I, I think it's going to be Kavanaugh, Roberts, and um, Barrett in uh, as as a middle conservative group. Not certainly not like the way Kennedy was. I don't expect her to swing left, right. but I do think that she might moderate the more extreme forces. Uh, you know, among uh, Alito, Thomas, and in certain cases Gorsuch. I, I uh, hope you're you know, Gorsuch I, on voting I, rights is just abysmal. Right. And, you know, I'm watching this Bernovich case uh, very closely. Bernovich is a case uh, involving this uh, couple of Arizona 
uh, rules for voting, where the Supreme Court for the first time is going to weigh in on how Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act applies outside the redistricting context. We know how it applies in redistricting. There's a case called Thornburg versus Jingles from the 1980s, and there have been a number of follow-on cases. So we have a very good sense of how that works, but we don't know how it works in the context of vote denial, these new voter suppression laws. And the Supreme Court has a tremendous amount of power now. And uh, you know, I listened to your argument. It's not clear to me where the court's going to go. And this is going to be one of the first big tests, you know, probably before we get to abortion, before we get to guns. I mean, those are coming in the next yeah. few years. Yeah. Um, we're going to find out where they stand on voting rights. And I, it would not surprise me to see Kavanaugh, Roberts, and Barrett as a right-leaning but somewhat more moderate. I mean, the idea of talking about John Roberts as a moderate on voting rights and race <laughs> I was gonna say what? just Come shows on. you how far <laughs> things have gone. But, you know, someone like Justice Thomas basically believes that the Voting Rights Act is unconstitutional and that it doesn't even apply to redistricting. You know, he's got some really wacky views yeah. and Gorsuch seemed to have gone along with him in some recent cases on that. So, uh, yeah, so I, so you've got the far right, you've got the right, and then you've got the three liberals who have a much harder time finding two votes for what they want than sure. what was a five to four court. Yeah, you can always find yeah. one more. So, so one of the themes of my of this series has been talking to a lot of the leading law professors and political scientists around. Um, is I keep reminding people, and you know my agenda, that, that they're human beings. These justices, they're not gods sitting in a marble palace on a hill, and they have flaws and they have values. And and I do wonder. There's a there's a little teeny part of me that is a little bit optimistic. Maybe I may be going too far about the idea that Roberts, for no law-related reason, but just a personal-related reason, might want to issue someday a voting rights decision that's not terrible to remove this, what he must now see as a huge stain on his legacy. Um, that there's one, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of agreeing with what you just said, that maybe he'll be able to get one of the other conservatives to join the three liberals in a not terrible voting rights decision. Do you think that's possible? I'm skeptical. Yeah. Uh, I don't think Roberts has changed his view. I don't think, you know, someone asked Kennedy, it may have even been you, <laughs> if he thought that if he thought that uh, Citizens United was wrongly decided. He was like, no, you know, it was great. You know, this is a few years after, like, I, he's seeing what happened to you. No, this is what we want. You know, I don't think if you ask Roberts if he thinks Shelby County was wrong, I think he'd say Shelby County was right. Uh, he might not like some of the kind of extreme stuff that's going on now with Trump, but... I don't see him as a voting rights champion. And, you know, Robert's MO tends to be to move incrementally and to decide cases in ways that make it hard to see what he's doing. So to give you an example, there's a case called McCutcheon versus Federal Election Commission. It's a campaign finance case in uh, from 2014. The case involved contribution limits. And one of the issues was what level of scrutiny you apply to contribution limits. The court has always said, quote, exacting scrutiny, which is this intermediate something between rational basis and strict scrutiny. And Robert said, you know, we don't have to decide here uh, Mitch McConnell's argument that we should start applying strict scrutiny. And then he went on to redefine exacting scrutiny to make it much closer to strict scrutiny. That's a typical Roberts move. He said, well, we're not changing anything. And by the way, this is what it means. And he changed a lot. Yeah. So... 
I could see that happening. You know, there's another case. Hold on, quick one second. Uh, so that, that McCutcheon case, I have to mention Posner once a, once an episode because I just do. That's that's the case where he wrote in Slate, where you write, you know, quite a bit. Used to write quite a bit, where he where where where, where Roberts's view of the kind of corruption that can be the subject of campaigns finance reform was only quid pro quo and no other kind of corruption. Right. And Posner wrote a piece saying he's either lying or he's stupid. And then he said he's not stupid, <laughs> which I thought yeah. was interesting. Only Poster can get away with that. But I hate that case because writing a check, an Alabama, someone in Alabama writing a check to a politician in California, which is what that case was about, we can talk about money facilitating speech. I'm all over that. But writing that check is no more speech than writing a check to a plumber to fix, you know, and, and, and the way the court, I, I'm sorry, I just, I just hate that case a lot. It's just one of my, I think it's a terrible case. Well, you know, I, I'm worried because I listened to the oral argument this past week in the Americans for Prosperity yes. versus Bonta case, yes. which is not a campaign finance disclosure case, but it's going to affect those. And again, that issue is what does exacting scrutiny mean yeah. in the context yeah. of disclosure laws? And I'm, I'm worried the same thing's going to happen again. So you can imagine, back to your question about Roberts, yeah. Roberts saying, I'm not going as far as Thomas and Alito and Gorsuch, because those three seem to be. Because they're nuts. <laughs> Well, they seem to be ready to call lots of disclosure laws into question. But I could see Roberts saying something like, um, we're going to apply our familiar exacting scrutiny, which means, and then it becomes stricter. Right. You know, and does he get Kavanaugh and Barrett or, and or Barrett to come along and then he's the controlling block? I could see that, you know. Again, Kavanaugh doesn't want to see himself being painted as an extremist. I think he has a real personal, you know, goes back to your point about these justices are people. Yeah. He has a very personal reason for being seen as not, um, you know, not the terrible person that he's been painted by some on the left to be. And he seems to care about that stuff a lot in a way that I think Gorsuch is like, you don't like me, you don't like me. I'm <laughs> going to stand by my principles. I don't get that feeling from Justice Kavanaugh. Right. And again, with Justice Barrett, I think it's too early to know. But, you know, my experience with the justices when they're new on the court is that they tend to be cautious. So there was a case before Citizens United called Wisconsin Right to Life, mm -hmm. where Roberts and Alito issued this very narrow incremental decision that was the controlling decision. And that's where Justice Scalia wrote a concurrence uh, agreeing that it was, uh, you know, agreeing with the bottom line, but not with how they got there, saying this faux judicial restraint is judicial obfuscation, if you remember <laughs> that line, which basically meant... You know, you're pretending you're not doing a lot, but you're doing a lot and you need to come come join us and actually say it. And, but, you know, Roberts has always been that way. Scalia wrote that Scalia wrote that same opinion in the Hine taxpayer standing case about Alito's opinion in that case, which is judicial restraint is fine. But this isn't judicial restraint. This is just judicial craziness. I forget what he wrote. Rick, um, I, I have two more areas I want to get into. Um, so the first one. So let's say you were appointed tomorrow. Elections are, which you should be, um, and you had some authority to make one or two major changes to American elections. I take it one would be a paper ballot for every state, no matter what. What other, what other things would you do? Well, back in 2012, I wrote a book called The Voting Wars, mm -hmm. and what I called for then is National Nonpartisan Election Administration. The way it's done in virtually every other advanced democracy in the world. You right. have a, a civil service body. Uh, with someone who's a, you know protected kind of like the Federal Reserve. Um, and we've talked about how you get there to get somebody who's above politics, who could 
whose allegiance is to the fairness of the process, not to a political party. I mean, look, Alex Padilla, he's the new uh, U.S. Senator from California. Before that, he was the Secretary of State of right. California, elected Democrat. And he is endorsing Joe Biden, and he's like campaigning for Joe Biden. <laughs> um, Brad Raffensperger in, in your state of Georgia is like, I'm a Trump guy. It's like right. the person running the election should not be making statements <laughs> like this. And they have every incentive to, because most of them, not Raffensperger, but most of them have further political ambitions. Secretary of State is the stepping stone to the next spot. So that's what Kemp, Kemp, Kemp was Secretary of State, if memory serves. Our governor yes. was Secretary of State. Yeah. Yes, and John Husted, who was the Secretary of State in Ohio, but is now the Lieutenant Governor. Yeah. I mean, yeah. so we need to change that system. And if, you know, we have 250 years of local election administration, uh, it's not going to happen overnight. Um, but um, we need to change that. What I really want to see, I had a piece that made a lot of my um, progressive friends unhappy in the Washington Post uh, about a month ago, saying HR1 is not going to pass. HR uh, one is this 800-page yeah. voting rights bill, campaign finance bill, ethics bill. Does a million things. I love a lot of the things, and I don't like everything, but I love a lot of things in it. But that's not. You're not going to get Joe Manchin blowing up the filibuster for this. But this is the moment. We don't know how much longer Democrats are going to retain control of the House, the Senate, and the presidency. This is the moment to put in some number one voting rights protections. You know, so for example, every state has to. Re meet at least a floor in terms of offering early voting and opportunities for voting. Number two, steps to prevent election subversion like the paper ballot, right? right. And number three, bolstering Republican moderates so that we actually have two responsible political parties and we can crush the uh, anti-truth right. faction right. within That's the really... Republican Party. We need a vibrant and um, uh, uh, honest Republican Party to be the opposition party. And so what does that look like? Well, you know, one provision of H.R. 1 says every state has to use registering commissions for uh, congressional elections. You could try that. You could try a top four primary like they have in um, um, Alaska, ranked choice voting, right? There's all kinds of things that you could do to try to fix uh, the way that uh, we run our primary system so that Republican moderates have a better chance of being elected. It's interesting. I, I love the idea of independent election commissions. I actually, progressives were all mad at me, still are, I think, because I think the court was right not to hear the Rucho case. I think it, the court shouldn't get involved in all that because I want independent election commissions, which, of course, the court might strike down if it ever happens. But leaving all, leaving, leaving all that aside, um, it feels like we have, we've got to figure out a way to get a moderate Republican Party back that believes that democracy is at least as important as party, if not more important. And I don't, I don't know how Democrats can facilitate that other than moving to the right. How, how do Democrats facilitate that? That's a, hard, that's a hard task. It is, and a lot of it's going to have to come from the Republican Party. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, it's hard because, you know, th this is not the time for this other discussion, but there are structural portions of the Constitution that— right now work to the systematic benefit of the Republican Party, the composition of the United States Senate, two senators from every state. Right. right. You know, we're going to be at a point in 20 years or something where, um, uh, what is the figure? 70 percent of the population is going to be represented by 30 uh, percent of the Senate. Yes, I, I can't crazy. remember the exact number. Yeah. You know, we've got the Electoral College. So 
uh, you know, Democrats have to win by more, right? So like, I remember when 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 Biden was ahead in the polls, they said, well, you know, he could lose by six percent, and uh, uh, Trump could lose by six percent and still win the electoral college. And look, shift forty thousand votes, and we'd be talking about the second Trump term right now. So it's a terrifying uh, you thought, know, Rick. It's a terrifying. There are just you know so that that's a whole other discussion. Yeah. But you know there are things that can be done, like in states that have the initiative process, until the Supreme Court tells us otherwise, and states have the initiative process, like Michigan, yep. you can have yep. redistricting commissions. Yep. Arizona redistricting commission. This can help. Now that's not going to help in every state, but you know, um, agitating for look, look the fact that the business community in Georgia lined up against the the voting bill that was a big deal and in fact the voting bill uh, you know i don't think it's nearly as bad as it's been portrayed i am not a fan of it sure and i told you i'm really worried about the vote election subversion yeah. but you can imagine stuff that's much worse like, you don't even have to imagine it texas and florida are about to pass stuff that's worse yeah you know so pressure from the business community can help you know like those moderate republicans they don't want to join the democratic party they want a vibrant Republican Party, too. You know, so Ted Cruz comes out and says, I'm not going to take corporate PAC money. You know, <laughs> Th that money's not really that big a deal. But corporate executives acting as bundlers and being big campaign right. contributors, if that goes away for the Republican Party, you know, and they have to appeal to small donors. That's how, you know, Trump was like Obama was like McCain, like the populist um, uh, candidates who can get a lot of small donors. That's a model that can work. It's the fact that unfortunately for for Cruz and Hawley is that they're so personally odious it's hard <laughs> to see that they're going That's going to be the headline, Rick. <laughs> Rick calls Hawley and Crump uh, odious. I'm kidding. But yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Um, so I want to shift. We have like five or ten minutes left and I want to shift total gears here. And thanks. You, by the way, you get the award for one of the most intelligent and most depressing podcasts of the <laughs> of my podcast career. Um, but of course, this is an incredibly depressing topic. Um, I want to talk about Scalia for a minute. You wrote a book on it. I reviewed it. It was a great book. Um, and and there have been a couple books since. I, I have, I, I want you to disabuse me of this, or maybe you won't. But, but, you, but as someone who wrote a book on Scalia, you're a good person to ask. I feel like his myth, that the myth of Scalia, is this overhanging shadow. I, so a friend of mine uh, at Duke, um, Steve Sachs, who's really a nice guy and, and a terrific law professor. I don't like his originalism work, but he's really, he just got the uh, Antonin, Antonin Scalia chair at Harvard. And I'm glad for Steve who's going to Harvard. He's a nice guy. Um, I find it odious there's an Antonin Scalia chair at Harvard because if we, he, I mean, just Scalia's last 15 years on the bench, he was on the wrong side of every civil rights issue ever. I think, with the exception of a couple of criminal procedure cases, and his and his and he made odious comparisons between homosexuality and murder and all these other things. Yet he is still a hero to the right, to the fellow society, to young students, to lawyers, to judges, and I I, I find this to be almost um, it makes me crazy. What what is your reaction to all that? So I think that. Um Scalia will be even bigger in death than he was in life. I think I wrote that near the end of my book because, um, you know, this podcast is Supreme Myths, yeah. right? And yeah. there was so much myth-making around Scalia. He was the only principal judge. He set himself up as, you know, Thomas is a nut, right? <laughs> I'm, an, I, I'm the only one, you know. I see, 
I, I, you know, I developed this in the just in the introduction of the book because the book was pretty much done when Trump went into office. I see a connection among Donald Trump, Antonin Scalia, and Newt Gingrich. Ugh, I see that. That's so sad. You're as, killing me here. Go ahead. <laughs> I see them as faux populist, uh, right wing um, uh, disruptors. Yeah. Yeah. Scalia came in and he blew up the Supreme Court. You know, when Elena Kagan says we're all textualists now, you know, it shows you how far the kind of um, but it's all rhetoric hero worship. But what's that? It's all rhetoric. I mean, what she means by rhetoric, that. But I, I'm, we're talking about myths, you know, so yeah. he set himself up yeah. as this, um, you know, the one true, you know, I alone can save you. That is Gingrich. That is Trump. And that is Scalia. And I really think that the three of them together change the uh, the Congress, the presidency and the Supreme Court. You know, Scalia also was a celebrity justice and I've written a lot about this, about how he, you know, he would go and he'd do these appearances, you know, kind of a rock star. Um, he set the stage for Justice Ginsburg to play that same role on the left. I yep. think it's very yep. dangerous when we have our justice. And I got a lot of uh, uh, criticism for uh, going after Justice Ginsburg for the, you know, the, all of this uh, Me too. Know, hero worship. Me too. I think it's really bad for our, you know, for our judges to be. You know, in other countries, judges are more like civil servants. They're not, right. you know, jurisprudential rock stars. So it does not surprise me that some rich donor, you know, would have a Scalia chair at, at Harvard, just like the George Mason Law School is the Antonin Scalia you know, Law School, yeah. not School of Law, because we know what that um, uh, stands for, right? But the, uh, yeah, it, it is it is not really about Scalia's jurisprudence. It's not really even about Scalia as the reality. It's Scalia the myth. Which yeah. is, you know, so it's the same, you know, it's like Ronald Reagan, right? Every Republican, at least until Trump was saying, you know, I'm the heir of Ronald Reagan. You know, <laughs> we're going to do this uh, in Reagan's way and then they do whatever they want. But I think that that, you know, he's he set himself up, changed the institution in many ways, not for the better. Um, uh, and um, his legacy is one that uh, allows for lots of conservative ju judging to be under, in the guise of applying neutral principles. And a lot of people actually drink that Kool-Aid. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Susanna Sherry wrote a great long article about celebrity justices and how dangerous that whole idea is and how it gets in the way. You know, I, I love Susanna and she's great to me in my career. I think her reliance on reason to decide hard con law cases is a little bit, fud you know, a little bit fuzzy, but I think she's right about this. I also think I think what's – first of all, I think it's a great thesis about Gingrich, Scalia, and Trump. That's a great thesis. And there's a lot of similarities. I mean personal similarities in those three men um, that I think would be interesting to pursue. I think that's really, that's really interesting, Rick, and smart. Um, but the other thing about Scalia is – I mean, let's take – I mean, you know, Harvard Law has, what, two – now two conservative con law professors maybe, Goldsmith and Sack, maybe three, whatever. But – Well, they're you know, dating John Manning. Right, and John Manning. Right. Um, but uh, – it wasn't that long ago Scalia called voting rights a racial entitlement. It wasn't a racial entitlement. I mean, you know, it wasn't that long ago that he said, well, communities can, can prohibit murder so they can prohibit homosexual conduct. It wasn't that long ago he said that women aren't protected by the 14th Amendment in any serious way. Yet, giving out chairs, naming schools, is, there, is it all branding? Is this just, he was just the best brander ever? Is, how do we explain it? 
That's my last question. How do we explain? I, I, I just, I just think he's. I think, I think that um, there are many supporters of Scalia who wouldn't necessarily agree with all of his ideas. Yeah. Uh, just like Justice Brennan, when Justice Brennan set up, you know, allowed the, his former clerks to set up the Brennan Center, he said, you know, don't make it about my ideas. You know, you should go with, right. you know, whatever you think is right at the time. Justice right. Justice Brennan, for example, uh, you know, was very skeptical about spending limits. Uh, um, you know, he had a different view on campaign finance yeah. than what the Brennan Center take. Yeah. I think, you know, Scalia's kind of set off a trajectory. It's more of Scalia as a mood than it is Scalia <laughs> as a, uh, on the particular uh, issues. And so... Um, let's take Obergefell. I mean, I think this is great progress. I think a lot of Scalia supporters would be on the other side. I agree uh, with that. The gay rights issue. Yeah. Uh, society, society progresses and, uh, you know, Scalia and Thomas, they, they didn't evolve, but yet, um, a lot of their supporters have, and there are certain third rail issues like abortion where, uh, they're not going to evolve, but on lots of other issues, you know, um, Scalia did not put in his opinion racial entitlement. That was in an oral argument yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. in um, a case before Shelby County. Yeah. And um, but, you know, th that's not the part of Scalia that lives on. And that's not the part that people focus on. Well, thank you. I should say that I, I should say, say one thing, which is that uh, my comparison of Gingrich and, and Trump, I think Gingrich and Trump have sh shown themselves to be personally immoral in how they've live their lives. Yes. I don't see yeah. that with Justice Scalia. I didn't write a biography of Justice Scalia, but for everything I could tell, he was someone who was, um, you know, uh, uh, played by the rules and was a, was, was a moral person and a patriot. I say that at the beginning of the book. I think he was a patriot. I think he was doing what he thought was best for the country. I don't think that about Gingrich or Trump. So that does distinguish them, but they were. Uh, all three disruptors of the status quo. It's interesting about Scalia. Um, I agree with you, I agree with your general point there. I, I do think it's interesting that um, he, there are certainly hundreds of tales of him going to law schools and being very generous and being, you know, he, I mean, he always gave his speech about the Constitution is dead, dead, dead. But but you know, he was yeah. always very, um, you know, nice to be around and all that. But I've also yes. heard stories where that's not true. I mean, there was an incident at Virginia where he apparently got really mad because a student had a car accident and got there late or something. Um, and there are, there are enough stories about his personal life that I, I, I'm not sure we know the whole story. He, he, he's not a philanderer like Gingrich and Trump, I don't think. Um, but whether he's moral or not, I'd like to reserve judgment. You did give me a great idea for a blog post, Scalia as Mood. I'm going to be working on that, sure. and I'll, I'll, I'll credit you when that, one, when that one comes out. Rick, thank you so much for being here. I really enjoy talking to you, and I, I hope we can do it again in person when COVID ends, and uh, I'll get you back to Atlanta sometime, I hope. It was a great pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Rick.